Our scripture today is from Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 6 through 8. And you can follow along in um, your Bible or on the screen behind me. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers, that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. This is the word of the Lord. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to be in verses 3 through 14 this morning. Last week, we finished the book of Ruth, and we celebrated the grand redemption that really that whole book um, speaks to and, and highlights that there is a redeemer, and that redeemer is God in the heavens above. And uh, a couple days ago, my daughter Ruth was born to us, to our family, Ruth Ann McIntosh. So uh, we've been celebrating that since Friday afternoon. Sure, thanks. Super excited that Ruthie has joined us. And two hours, two, two, maybe two plus hours before Ruthie was born, Caleb Cravens was born. And so uh, if you know Adam and Marilyn, be sure to reach out to them and, and congratulate them for their little boy who was just born. Friends, uh, as we, we finished up Ruth, I tried to make it very clear that there is a Redeemer, and, and our Redeemer is God. God used Boaz. Boaz was an instrument of redemption in the life of Naomi and Ruth. But God is really the hero. He is truly the Redeemer of our souls. And the God whom we worship Sunday after Sunday is a triune God. We worship the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One God in three persons. And so the triune God is our redeeming God. And my hope really over the next four Sundays, including this morning, is to just continue to ride in the wave of redemption into the shoreline, so to speak. We're going to start by looking at this text and my hope this morning specifically is to answer the question, well, how do each of the persons of this triune God play a part in our redemption? That's what this text answers. And then in the next three Sundays afterwards, I will be out on paternity leave and uh, that is why I am constantly laboring to invest in men to preach the word when I'm not in the pulpit. And so we've got the gift of three godly men who are going to step up and preach the word passionately and, and really go deeper into the significance of redemption. So next Sunday, we're going to talk about how does redemption from the triune God, how does it impact our singing week to week and Sunday to Sunday, and, and then we're going to look at how, how does redemption impact our praying, and then after that, we're going to look at the fact that redemption even impacts our counseling of one another, 
So we've got a lot to look forward to this month. It's really exciting. But for this morning, let's look at Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. Look at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he's blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. I've entitled this morning's sermon, Praise God, Three in One. And one of the foundational things about us as Christians is that we serve a triune God. But unfortunately, most of the time, when we think about the Trinity or when we're talking about the Trinity, we get so caught up in all of the analogies and illustrations that fall short of the glory of God that we miss the forest from the trees at times. and We really miss the beauty and the significance of the fact that our God is triune and that's different from any other claims of any other people on earth. We serve the Trinity we worship the triune God. Once again, one God, yet in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There's beauty here. Our God is eternally relational. Our God is eternally loving. Our God is eternally holy, holy, holy. Our God is so set apart from everything else in the cosmos that he created. And though it is true that we cannot know God completely exhaustively, there are things that we can know about him truly. And one of these things is that he is triune. That's beautiful. And I'm convinced that from the scriptures that this grand redemption that we have been celebrating, that this gospel that is so beautiful, 
It showcases the Trinity in a way that stirs our affections for God. In a way that causes your soul and mind to worship God differently. It compels us to respond with reverent, awestruck praise all to the glory of God for our salvation, the triune God. And so as we continue to study the word of God, both corporately and individually, friends, we're, we're studying the scriptures that are revealing progressively from Genesis to Revelation that our God is one and yet there's three persons in this one God and there's so much praise and so much glory and so much honor and so much credit that belongs to our triune God. And so that's what we're looking at today. I hope that this morning gives you a new appreciation for the Trinity. I hope again that it stirs your affections for God who is triune and who has redeemed you. The first thing I want you to see this morning is that God the Father is worthy of your praise and mine because God the Father has chosen to save. My first point is that we were chosen by the Father. Look at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. So a very important question for us to ask as we look at this statement is, what does it mean? What does it mean that we are chosen by the Father in Christ? And quite simply, it means this. It means that you were chosen, if you here have put your faith in Christ, it means that you were chosen by God the Father in eternity past to be found in Christ on the day of judgment that is coming. It means that you were chosen to be saved. Among all the peoples on the earth, God the Father chose to save you. God the Father chose, so to speak, to bring you into the ark of salvation before the floods of judgment. God the Father chose to save you out of Sodom and Gomorrah before he rains down judgment on the city. God the Father has chosen to graciously bring you under his strong wing of redemption. Before Christ comes again. This is a grace. This is a blessing. This is a privilege. This is a mercy from God the Father. God the Father, had he not chosen to save us, had he not chosen that we be found in Christ, we would have never chosen to put our faith in Christ. It's important that we understand the ordering of this 1 John chapter 4, verse 19 says that we love, not just God, but we love our neighbor. We love one another. Why? Because he first loved us. This concept of God the Father choosing to save some is not new. It is controversial, but it's incredibly biblical inescapably biblical, but really what I want to highlight is that it's beautiful. 
It's so beautiful. It, I hate that we sometimes get in this trap of, oh, we're debating things like election and predestination and the Father choosing us. And, and really, we need to look at the text and go, what was God trying to communicate through this text? And it is his incredible eternal love. It says in the text, when he chose to save us in Christ, it says he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. That's a long time ago. <laughs> That's before time. That's before space. That's before matter. That's before the foundation was put in the world, in the created world. God chose to save you in Christ before he created a single star in the sky. Anything, before anything was created, before the cornerstone of his creation, he chose to save you in Christ. What a blessing. No one's loved you longer than God the Father. That's what this is communicating. And no one ever will. Why? I mean, that's the real question. We see the, the, what it means. We see when it took place. But the question is why? Why would you ever choose to save me, a wretched sinner? And the answer's right here in the text. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. So the first thing I want you to see is why did God the Father choose to save you? It was so that you could have access into his presence. It was so that you could be with him and that he could be with you. A holy God. A blemishless God. A, a blameless God. A sinless God. He wanted you, a sinner, and me, a sinner, to be in his presence. And so he did this. He chose us before the foundation of the world, before you did anything good or bad. We needed to be holy and blameless to be in the presence of this holy God. We're not. And so he first chooses us to be in Christ so that in Christ we have what we would not have otherwise, which is his holiness, which is the credit, the, the, the earnings of Christ's perfect life, what he merited in his life which is eternal life, which is access into the Father's holy presence forever and ever and ever. What a grace. We were chosen not because we were good, but because God's good. And he delights in saving sinners and his son. Ephesians 2, if we were to continue on, and we will preach through this book at some point, God willing, but if we were to continue on, you and I would see in Ephesians 2 that we were born into this world spiritually alive and yet spiritually, uh, physically alive and yet spiritually dead. And that's made evident through our lives, through the ways that we've walked in this world sinfully in rebellion to our God who gave us life. And this doctrine of total depravity or the fact that we are naturally sinners, we have a sin nature. It's not new. It's very, very old. It starts in Genesis 3, and it just continues on all throughout the scriptures. Genesis 3, after Adam and Eve had sinned, they were forced out of the presence of God, not to come back in. 
to access with God. And yet they were given a promise that God would make a way for them to be brought back in, but that it would be through death. So we needed a redeemer. We see our sin problem continued in Genesis 4. The offspring of Eve, Cain, kills his brother Abel and manifests this reality of a dark sin nature in our hearts. And then we go to Genesis 5, and what do we see? We see God's promise fulfilled. We see that the wage of sin is death, and and so it's so-and-so lived, and then he died. And then this person lives, and he dies. It's a whole genealogy of death. And then you go to Genesis 6, and God sees that the wickedness of man is great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. It was bent towards it. Sin nature, it's so natural. And so God sends a flood to wipe out all of humanity, except he shows grace to Noah and his family. And then after the flood, Genesis 8, 21, it says that the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. How young? How early on? Is this sin problem? Psalm 51.5 says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. My, my daughter's got a sin problem. She, she's a little sinner. She doesn't have much strength to act on it right now. But every child is born a sinner in need of a Redeemer, and that Redeemer is Jesus Christ. Psalm 16, the psalmist cries out, wisely, rightly, appropriately, preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. John 15, verse 5, Jesus just carries on what's been being said all throughout the scriptures. He says, apart from me, you can do nothing. And what he means is, you can do no good thing apart from faith in me. Apart from an abiding relationship in me. Some of us, at times, begin to believe the lie that we can somehow produce the fruit of the Spirit apart from an abiding relationship with Jesus Christ. It is impossible. It is as impossible as if you were to try to take flight by flapping your arms this afternoon on your way home. We can produce no good thing apart from Him who has come and redeemed us. But listen to how God solves this deep, dark sin problem in our hearts. 2 Corinthians 5, 21 Paul writes this, he says, For our sake, He, God the Father, made Him, Jesus Christ, to be sin, who knew no sin. Why? So that in Him, we might become the righteousness of God. That is the gospel. That is the great exchange That is the message that we must never lose sight of. It is everything. It is what will recharge our batteries 
It is what we must return to day after day. God the Father took steps towards us long before we ever knew Him. Long before we could have a positive or negative thought of Him. He took steps towards us. He chose us to be in Christ before the foundation of the world so that in Christ we might have His righteousness and He might take on our sinfulness at the cross in full so that we could be brought into the presence of God, so that we would be before him blameless and holy in his sight. We are what God says we are. And if you have taken refuge in the Redeemer through faith alone, through crying out and saying, I am the greatest need of a Savior, of anyone I know, of anyone in this room, and I believe it's Jesus Christ, then you are who he says you are. You are blameless in his sight. You are righteous in his sight. You are a beloved child of God. My question for you this morning is, have you been resting in this reality? If that's you, are you embracing it by faith? Are you engaging with God, your Father, out of this reality of his great love for you, I pray that you and I would grow in this all throughout the, the remainder of our life, however long, until Christ comes back. The Father chose that we be in Christ not just to be near him, but to be brought into his family. Look at the text that says that it was for adoption that he chose us to be in Christ. It says, in love, verse 5, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. This is so beautiful. He, he wanted us to be near him and and so he chose us to be near him, but it's, it's so much more than just access and nearness. It's, it's significant that we are brought into the kingdom of Christ, having been living in the domain of darkness. That's significant. That's beautiful. That's wonderful. Thank you for the transferring us into this sphere and scope. And yet, we're nearer than that. He, he calls us his servants, his soldiers of Christ in his kingdom. And that means that we get to engage with God in that way. We get to the privilege of serving him, and that's near. He, he calls us friends in John 15, and that's significant. That we get to relate to him, not as enemies, but as friends. And yet he goes further, and he says, I'm bringing you near so that I can call you my beloved son or my beloved Daughter in my beloved Son, Jesus Christ. Praise God. 1 John 3, 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. It's just, it, it's mind-blowing. You know, I just welcomed in my daughter into this world. I loved her so much further back before she was even conceived. I, we had a, the name picked out years ago, and then I'm preaching through this series in Ruth, and I'm just, the anticipation's welling to hold my baby girl. I just love her. And yet, on my best day, on my very best day as a father, the scriptures say 
that I'm like an evil father in compared to our heavenly father. He's so much better. He's so much more loving. He's so much more merciful and gracious and kind and proactive in his love and pursuant in his love than the best dad on earth. That's who God the Father is to you if you are in Christ today. And that's who he can be to you if you would flee from your sin and take refuge in the Savior today. Oh, what love. How can it be that God the Father would send his only son to die in your place and mine on the cross at Calvary? It's so intense. It's so immense. It's so beautiful. It's so worthy of praise. He adopted us into his family. We had to be born again into his family. He brought us in to his family. Friends, the analogy is not something that we can just move quickly past. There is not an orphan on earth who makes that decision for herself or himself. A father must come and say, I'm bringing you into my home, into my arms, and that is what God the Father has done by choosing us to be in Christ before the foundation of the world. Years ago, I had this image in my mind that I just could not get out, and I still can't get it out because it's so beautiful and it's just a picture of the Father's love for us. He travels a far distance from heaven to earth and he goes into an adoption, an orphanage to adopt us. And he looks in the corner and in my mind I just remember seeing a corpse of a child encircled with flies, spiritually dead, not even reaching out for a father or for a mother, and that's what God the Father has done. He has pursued us when we were dead in our sins, and he brings us into his arms when we're unlovely, unlovable, and he breathes life into us, and he makes us beautiful over the course of our life as we remember his love comes first. My, my question for us this morning, I guess, is just simply this. Do you embrace this reality, if you're in Christ, of how deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure, that he would give his only son to make a wretch his treasure? Maybe, maybe you came in and you go, I do believe that. I'm telling you that the opportunity to go deeper in that understanding is here for you this morning and this week. You can grow in an awareness of the Father's love for you, and it will affect your worship. The Father has done this, choosing us to be in Christ before the foundation of the world, for access to him, for adoption into his family, and so that all adoration and praise would be long to God the Father alone. Look at the text. It says, this was done in according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he's blessed us. In the beloved. 
I'm going to do a, a quick biblical theology of God's sovereignty and kindness in choosing some to save. And I have to run through it quick. Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve did not choose to have life. God gave them life. They actually chose to seek out life apart from the God who gave them life. And it led to death. And yet God promised to bring life. And that came through Christ, ultimately. Noah. God chose to save Noah from among all the people on earth at a very dark time. Abraham. Abraham was a pagan living in the land of Ur, of the Chaldeans. He was not interested in God. He was not seeking after God. And yet God sought him out and God said, Abraham, I'm going to give you land. I'm going to give you seed. I'm going to give you blessings. And he followed through. And he gave him Isaac. And he gave him Ishmael. And yet Isaac was the chosen child, not Ishmael. And he gave children to Isaac. He had twin boys, Jacob and Esau. And yet Jacob was the chosen one, not Esau. I just want you to listen to Romans 9, verse 10 through 16. Just commentary on this. When Rebekah, Isaac's wife, had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born, and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, that's God the Father. She was told, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So it depends then not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. I just laid out the beauty of it, right? But I will, I will tell you at this point, if you have a problem with God initiating redemption and reconciliation, you have to take it up with God and his word. Because this is not a man standing in a pulpit telling you, this is my opinion. This is what it says, as clear as day. But what I'm trying to highlight is that it's not something to be afraid of. It's not something to be discouraged by. It's something to be wowed by. It's something to bring you into greater awe that God would love you in such a way. The reality is that all people are sinners. Every single one of us is in need of mercy. And God has graciously and mercifully chosen to extend grace and mercy to some. And he's done it for their good and for his glory ultimately. Jacob grew up and his name was changed by God to Israel. And Israel had 12 sons, which became the 12 tribes of Israel. And the 12 tribes grew in number. They amassed amount of people in Egypt, and that became the nation of Israel. 
And this is what God said in Deuteronomy 7. It was read earlier this morning, verse 7 and 8. It says, it was not because you were more in number than any of the other people that the Lord set, that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. So even there, what does it mean to be chosen? It means to have the Lord set his love on you. For you were the fewest, actually, of all the peoples, but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand, not yours, his, and he has redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Israel was not so amazing. It was not like God looked down on earth and all the peoples and all the nations and tribes and he goes, you know what? I pick Israel. First round draft pick in my NFL draft. They're they're coming in. That's the team to pick. No, they were the fewest of the people. Their wives were barren. And yet God chose what was weak in the world to show his power. God chose what was undeserving to show his mercy. This is God. We go on and on. We don't have time, so I'll say this quickly. Think about Moses. Moses, stuttering, shuddering Moses, whom God used to redeem the people out of literal slavery in Egypt. Moses, who actually murdered a man earlier in his life before God redeemed him and used him for his glory. Gideon, during the days of the judges, Gideon was self-described as the weakest in his tribe, and yet God chose him to raise him up as a judge and to save his people from their enemies in the land of promise before they had a king. And then they brought in a king, and he was terrible, King Saul. He was the man's, he was the people's choice. And yet God had another king that he had anointed, that he had appointed, and it was the one that no one suspected. Even the the father of the child didn't bring him up. When Samuel said, oh, I need to talk to all your sons, God has chosen to raise up a king from among your sons. And it's like David, the little shepherd boy David, he's still with the sheep. All right, well, go call. It's not one of these guys. And in the, the, the eyes of the world, it would have been, well, surely it's one of these sons, and yet God had this little shepherd boy, David, in mind. And so Paul comments on all of this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26. He says, consider your calling. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth, but God chose. What is foolish in the world to shame the wise? God chose. What is weak in the world to shame the strong? God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. Why? So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. God did not look into the future and say, hmm, she chose me, I must choose her now. God did not look into the future and say, hmm, he chose me, and so I must now choose him. God initiated by choosing to save you. You responded in time, in history, to his grace and to his effectual calling through the scriptures or through some weak 
preacher who's reading and preaching them. This is grace. This is powerful. This is all to the glory of God. Why did God make it this way? Why did he choose? To a certain extent, I, I, I don't know. Because he's God. But to another extent, he says it three times in this text this morning. It is to the praise of his glorious grace. That is why. It is so that no one in heaven will one day say, I'm here because, well, I chose God first, and then he responded by choosing me. Well, I'm here because I did some good things that God saw ahead of time, and so he said, hmm, I like her, I like him. No way. It's all of his grace so that you and I would never run out of steam for all eternity future in light of the Father's love for us in Christ. My second point for this, us this morning is not, not only were we chosen by the Father, and that's his role, and he sent the Son, but we were redeemed by the Son. He's the one who works out the redemption, a redemption greater than Boaz. Verse 7 says, in him we have redemption through his blood. So what does it mean to have redemption? Maybe in Ruth, as we were studying Ruth, you're going, what's the significance for me in my redemption? What it means is this. First and foremost, you have freedom from sin's bondage if you are in Christ. You're not a slave to sin. Well, where do you get that, Arch, from the text? Where, where is that? I'll tell you, there, there's six terms in the New Testament that are used, legal terms for the word redemption. And yet the one that's used here, that in him we have redemption, that word is lutro, and that word in the original language, it means to pay a ransom in order to release a slave from bondage. That's what God's trying to communicate here. Your shackles have been broken. You don't actually have to go back. You will at times. But it's not because you're a slave to sin anymore. Those chains are broken. The prison door cell is wide open. You can walk by the Spirit and not gratify the desires of the flesh. Praise God. Praise God. I'm not a slave anymore. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. One theologian put it this way. He said, until a person, until you realize your need for redemption, you'll never see a need for a redeemer. Until a person recognizes that they are hopelessly enslaved to sin, totally depraved in sin, he or she will never be freed from the curse of sin. They will not seek release from it. But when they do understand their need, and when they turn to the Redeemer and put their faith in Him alone and take refuge under His wings by faith alone, now they're freed from the curse of sin. 
Now they're placed in Christ's body with all the spiritual blessings that come with being in Christ. There are some in this room today, that's your application this morning. Flee to Christ and live. Romans 6, verse 17 and 18 says this. Thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. We are a slave to someone or something at all times. Make sure that your master is Christ. What was the cost of our redemption? What was the cost of our lutro, our freedom? It's the blood of Jesus Christ. It says that in him we have been, we have redemption through his blood. Look at me. There is no other way for you to be set free from slavery to sin apart from the blood of Christ. It is only by the blood of Christ. That's why we sing the songs, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, nothing can wash away our sin but the blood of Jesus. But the blood of Jesus, it washes away the stain of sin. And you might be here this morning. You might have come in after a very difficult week. Maybe it's been a rather sinful week. And you're thinking to yourself, well, there's no way, there's nothing powerful enough to wash this sin away. And I'm telling you this morning that his blood is sufficient. And he spilt his blood for this very purpose, for your freedom, for your forgiveness. 1 Peter 1 says that we were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from our forefathers, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. There was not a single drop of blood that hit the ground that went to waste. It was applied to his bride. 1 John 2.13 says, I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. And I need you to listen clearly. This is so critical that you hear this. Satan wants nothing more than this. Number one, to keep unbelievers deceived into thinking that They don't need the blood of Jesus to set them free. I'm not a slave to sin. I don't need a redeemer. I can redeem me. He loves that lie to keep you in darkness, a slave to sin and to him. The second thing you need to hear from me this morning is if you're in Christ, if you're a believer, Satan wants nothing more than this, to keep believers deceived into thinking that I'm still a slave to sin. When once again that prison cell door has been taken off the hinges, thrown against the wall, shattered, your chains broken, shackles freed from your wrist, 
you are no longer a slave to sin. You can say no to sin and yes to Christ in the moments of your temptation. Why? Because he said no to sin when tempted by the devil. Perfectly. He trailblazed a way to get back into the presence of God. He is your righteousness. He is your rescuer. He is the one who sets you free. Him and no one else. Verse 7 continues. It says that in him we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. Forgiveness of your trespasses, forgiveness of your sins. There is a way to be forgiven of your sin in full, not in part. And it is through taking refuge in Jesus Christ, the Redeemer. He, he loves to save sinners. He loves to redeem sinners. He loves to lavish his love upon us. And he doesn't do it recklessly. He doesn't do it flippantly. He doesn't do it without thought. The text says he did it in all wisdom and insight. The triune God came together, Father, Son, and Spirit, and says, are we doing this before they created anything? Are we going to save her? Are we going to save him? Are we going to send Christ? Are we going to have the apostles preach the gospel? Are we going to have men preach the gospel? Are we going to save through this seemingly insignificant and weak thing of men in a pulpit preaching the word of God? Yes. Is the Spirit going to move in these moments that seem ordinary and insignificant and powerless? Yes. He's doing it this morning all over the world. A grand redemption is being Worked out until Christ comes again. And everything's restored. Everything's redeemed. All his people and everything he ever created. Colossians 2.13 says, He canceled the record of our debt that stood against us with legal demands. Just as Boaz walked through the legal process of redeeming Naomi and Ruth, Jesus Christ walked through by living perfectly in your shoes, by fulfilling God's law, his moral law for you, he made a way for your debt to be canceled and he made a way to credit what he had earned into your account. Eternal life, forgiveness of sin, freedom, opportunity to serve him, opportunity to leverage your life, opportunity to revelate to leverage your resources, opportunity to speak of him whenever you want, wherever you want, even if they put you in prison. This is what God has done for you. Don't waste it. Leverage it. And let's leverage it in community because he has made each of us sons and daughters to come together as his family and to leverage the diversity of our gifts in unison with unity for redemption to carry on. He did this so that we could have friendship with God forever. Look at verse 9. Making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time 
to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. It's coming. This grand redemption is coming. The fullness of time has come in the sense that Christ has come, but he's coming again, and everything will be perfect. And there will be no end to our singing. There will be no distance between us and God. Praise God. Because Ephesians 2.13 says that now in Christ, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And that's true. And yet there's even a nearer nearness that's coming when he comes again. Look at verse 11 and 12. In him we've obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. A few things I want to note on this before we move to our third and final point, and we'll close. Number one, what is our inheritance that we've obtained? It's God. We get God. We get an eternity with God. That's why Jesus says in John 17, 3, his high priestly prayer, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. We get God. He's working this according to his counsel. No one else is counseling him. No one is God's counselor. He made this decision himself. And he made it so that even the apostles, who were the first to hope in Christ in the sense in the New Testament era since, that even them, when we get to heaven, they would not say, you know, I was actually one of the first ones that God saved and gave the Holy Spirit to. By God's grace you were, that's right. And yet, the Apostle Paul and Peter and James and John were chosen to be in Christ the same time you and I were before the foundation of the world. No one boasts in the presence of God, not even his apostles. We have good reason to praise God the Father. We have good reason to praise God the Son. We have great reason to praise God the Spirit. We've been sealed by the Spirit. That's my third and final point. Look at verse 13 and 14. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So the Father chose us long ago the Son entered into time, our great shepherd king. He redeems us at the cross. He resurrects from the dead. There is no one else that you can turn to for freedom and forgiveness of your sin but him. But when you do, you have it. 
And when that gospel is preached of what God has done by sending his only son to take on our sin, to give us his righteousness, free gift received by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, when that gospel is proclaimed, the gospel of your salvation, the word of truth, a word to be believed, a word that is trustworthy, when it's embraced, it says that that is of God's grace and that the Spirit seals us immediately. There's no delay. We hear the gospel, and God speaks through, again, a weak preacher. And you come alive, and you receive the Spirit, your first birthday gift as a born-again believer. I'm not talking about a churchgoer. I'm talking about someone who's now alive. And that's why they go to church, to worship the one who has saved them. And the Holy Spirit doesn't enter in and make his home in us temporarily. He does not leave or forsake us when we fall short of the glory of God as we do at times in this life. He seals us, it says, as the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So two things I want you to, to note about this, being sealed by the Spirit. The first is this. It means that he is our guarantee. The Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. If you know that you're a child of God, if you have assurance and confidence of your salvation, that is because the Spirit has given you that. That is objective assurance of your salvation. That the Spirit is testifying within your soul that I'm a child of God. This morning, there may be some here this morning who, who I don't have that assurance. Turn to Jesus and live. And if you take refuge in him and you find rest in him, the Spirit of God will bear witness with your soul that you are now a child of God. You have gone from being a child of wrath to a beloved child of God, precious in his sight. He's our guarantee. Subjective assurance of the Spirit's life and work in our heart is that we begin over time to bear more and more fruit of the Spirit. But here's something else about the seal of the Spirit. He's not just our guarantee. He is also our guardian. It says that he seals us. Sorry. He's the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So, yes, he's the guarantee, but friends, he is our guardian until we acquire possession of it. That is the day of redemption when Christ comes again and everything's reconciled, everything's redeemed. New heavens, new earth. He's holding us fast till then. He is sealing us for that day. He is allowing us to persevere till the end. You could not have a better bodyguard for your soul. He seals us for that day. That's why Peter writes in 1 Peter 1, 3 and 5, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, he caused us to be born again 
to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded. Do, do you see what I'm trying to get at this morning? I, I'm going I'm to close this in prayer. It is all of God, chosen by the Father, redeemed by the Son, sealed by the Spirit. Praise God, three in one. This is a grand redemption. And the appropriate response is praise. And so that's how we're going to close. Let me pray for us and then we will sing to our great God. Father, we praise you for choosing to save us in Christ before you did anything else, before you created anything. Jesus, we praise you for submitting to the will of God the Father and for wanting our redemption more than even we wanted redemption. For lavishly loving us by laying down your life at the cross. We praise you for being our redeemer. And Holy Spirit, we give you praise for sealing us, securing us, guarding us, even being grieved at times by us and by our sin. Guarding us for that final day until Christ comes again. Thank you for persevering us to the end. We pray that your grace would encourage us to strive for greater holiness, greater works of love, and mercy, greater efforts to evangelize this lost world to your glory. Amen.